Hi, I'm John Mayfield, your real estate instructor and school administrator for Global Real Estate School. And we're going to go over uh, the next few minutes regarding the Indiana State Real Estate Examination. Now, I've created what I call a cheat sheet. That sounds bad, doesn't it? It sounds like we're trying to cheat. But, um, you know, a lot of times you have cheat sheets for shortcuts on your keyboard and learning software. And that's really all this is. It's a, it's a cheat sheet with shortcuts to help you quickly go over the information for the real estate examination. Now this is going to be very informal. I may from time to time go to my computer and look up some information, um, but I wanna go through just the high points with you so that you can download this cheat sheet from your resources tab. It's also in your additional references tab from your course library. So you want to be sure and download this, print it out if possible, kind of go through this with me and you can make some notes. I'm also going to remove the audio from the video and this will be in a podcast format so you can listen to these topics as you are um, exercising, going back and forth to work in your car. Um, maybe you want to listen to it on the way to take the big examination. So we're going to go through just uh, some of the high points. I'm going to remind you about specific topics. There are four pages here and I will try to go through these briefly and I'm going to try to also point out how you might see the information presented to you on the real estate examination. So let's get started with our first topic which is uh, regarding the Real Estate Commission, now, one thing I do want to mention to you, in preparing the cheat sheet, I did download the Candidate Information Handbook, which is in your additional resources as well. So through the testing agency in Indiana, it's PSI, if you look at the Candidate Handbook, the very end or toward the end, they give you an outline of what's going to be on the exam both national and state. I took the state information, the, the outline, and that's what, how I developed the cheat sheet. So everything we're going through is in the same format as the outline from PSI that is in the Indiana Candidate Handbook, okay? And the first section is the Real Estate Commission. And you will notice there, there you will have five items from this section on the Real Estate Commission. Now, anytime you see the commission in the license law, it means real estate commission. You do need to know there are nine members uh, on the real estate commission. Uh, six of those are real estate brokers. One is a real estate member at large, and then we have two citizen members at large. They represent the general public. So nine members and each comes from a congressional district throughout the state of Indiana. Now what happens if they redraw the congressional districts and you end up with two in one district? Uh, they would remain that way until things could be um, voted on or reappointed by the governor, but I don't think you'll see a question on that. You do need to know that there's nine commission members, there are six real estate brokers, one real estate member at large who's not a broker and then two citizen members at large who represent the public. 
Now, um, uh, and by the way, the two the two members representing the general public, uh, they really want them to have never been involved in working in the real estate industry. So you might want to remember that. Now, real estate members who are engaged as a licensed broker, as you can see in the sheet here, um, they need to have been broke a broker for five or more years. Five or more years. Uh, very important for that to happen. And um, we can go on down and look at some other things here that you know you could see. They're appointed by the governor, and um, they enforce the Indiana Code and adopt rules as needed. So, you know, don't make the uh, the questions about the Real Estate Commission seem to be uh, too challenging. I think you need to know those numbers, 9, 2, and 1, right? <laughs> Each from a congressional district. But, you know, naturally, they're, they're going to enforce the license law. They're going to hold hearings. Uh, they're going to, you know, issue punishment if someone violates one of the laws. Um, and approved by, appointed by the governor, I think, is very important for you to know as well. Um, they can issue, deny, suspend license. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. They're going to investigate complaints as they come in. So when a complaint comes in, they'll investigate. They may send someone out from the Attorney General's office to investigate. They'll collect the facts and information, and then they may hold a hearing, as we'll talk about. Um, they can bring actions in the name of the state of Indiana and file um, complaints in circuit courts anywhere in Indiana. Sometimes real estate commissions may get a notice that, hey, um, John Smith is practicing real estate and John doesn't have a real estate license. Well, in that case, the Real Estate Commission can bring an action in the name of the state of Indiana in a circuit court, court and file what's called a cease and desist order. In other words, stop it. You don't have a real estate license and you've got to stop it immediately. So uh, they're going to inspect records, conduct public hearings. They have a seal that they use with the state of Indiana. You know, easy things that I think you would see on the exam there. They're going to enter into contracts for the commission, maintain files. Um, they're going to grant, deny, suspend, and revoke license. So when you pass your exam, you're going to apply for license. They're, they're either going to grant you a license that's coming from the commission. They could deny you a license. Or they could, you know, sometimes I've seen real estate commissions put someone on uh, kind of a temporary, um, not a suspension, but a probation over a certain length of time because of something in their past. So they're saying, you know, look, we're going to grant you a license, but you may have to be on a probationary status for a year and report back to us. All those things they could do, and I think those questions are going to be super easy to answer on the exam. Now, they will adopt rules from time to time. You know, the Internet's a good example. Many state real estate commissions have had to change rules over the last 10 years because of the Internet, and then you have social media and things are changing there. Even this year, as of the time of this recording, we've had COVID-19. And so a lot of real estate commissions are having to make 
new rules and adopt changes to conform with what's going on in the environment. Something new could be happening by the time you're watching this, but just understand that's part of the Real Estate Commission's rules and regulations. As I mentioned, this will be very informal, okay, because I just want to have just a conversation with you and um, help you understand some of these things that could be on the real estate exam. Um, they're going to come up with emergency rules. In Indiana, they also work with the, uh, the USPAP, which stands for the Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. In Indiana, there are a lot of appraisal items that run through the Real Estate Commission as well, as you will see. Um, they, they're going to make schools file for surety bonds. Uh, I had to get a surety bond when I got my school approved in Indiana. And that's basically just insurance that you, if I have students pay me money to go to school and I was to up and flee in the middle of the night, nobody could find me and the school couldn't finish, uh, you're insured to get your money back. Um, the other thing, emergency rules we talked about, exercise specific rules conferred upon them, and they will adopt rules for education as well. So, you know, keep in mind the Real Estate Commission is going to be able to do a lot of things. And uh, they are there to administer the Indiana Code to safeguard the public and to, re to regulate the rules and laws and to also make sure you and I are doing our proper job as real estate professionals. So again, um, you're going to have five questions. Now, the recovery fund falls under the Real Estate Commission. And the recovery fund is a fund that is set up. It's interesting. There's a lot of states, as I get my school approved in more states, a lot of states have a recovery fund. I live in Missouri, we do not have a recovery fund here. But a recovery fund, the, the recovery fund in Indiana, is a fee that they will charge, you and I as licensees, not more than $20 that will go into this fund that we'll talk about. And uh, I've got some things that are there. I could, I could look at the paper in front of me, but I also have some information right up here. Uh, so kind of keep it... Um, in front of the screen where I can look. But uh, part of this recovery fund is for enforcing the provisions of the Indiana Code, okay? Uh, investigating, taking enforcement action, um, all of those things could be found as part of the real estate fraud and real estate appraisal fraud. And then the funds that are collected are deposited into what, are we, call, what we call an investigative fund. Now the recovery fund, and I should back up just so you understand this, the recovery fund is really more of a fund that we pay out to people who have been wronged by a licensee, someone who's licensed under the Indiana Code, I refer to that a lot, or license law. Um, if someone's been wronged, and loses money, they can make application to the recovery fund and to try to, to recover some of their loss. Now, there are things that the recovery fund will not cover, and we'll talk about those in just a second. But 
Uh, the fund is established and administered by the Real Estate Commission. Keep that in mind. The fund can never fall below $450,000, okay? So you've got a minimum floor that we need to keep. Now, what happens if the fund falls below the $450,000? That's when they're going to impose a surcharge on you and I when we go to renew our license or when you go to get your initial license. Bottom line is if everybody just does the right thing and doesn't cheat anybody out of any money or defraud anyone, then people won't have to make application to the fund. People won't have to go to court to try to collect what they've lost and then make application to the fund and then the commission has to pay out those monies because if it falls below $450,000, they're going to they're gonna charge you and I a surcharge on the next during the next renewal cycle, and we, we'll talk about that. And so bottom line is let's all do let's do what's right and, and make sure that our fellow realtors and real estate, I shouldn't say realtors, because realtors are a member of the realtor organization. Everyone has a real estate license, and that's a good point. They may ask that question. The Indiana Association of Realtors or your local association of realtors, those are private organizations, okay? And you don't have to belong to the realtors organization. So what I meant to say is as Indiana real estate licensees, let's encourage everybody to do the right thing, okay? And that way, that fund will always stay up there and there will be no need for surcharges. Okay, so uh, the recovery fund has to stay minimum 450000 Not every Indiana real estate licensee is a realtor. You have to join the Association of Realtors. I just want to make sure we're on the same page and that I didn't throw anything out there. You know, it's interesting because when I teach continuing education courses, uh, all licensees in Missouri or Indiana or Florida, wherever I'm teaching my courses, all licensees have to take continuing education if they're an active licensee, right? But not all licensees are members of the realtor organization. So we can't really ever talk about the realtors in a CE class because not everybody there is a member of the realtor. So I, they do sometimes ask that question. I just want to make sure I clarify that for you. Okay. So the fund can never go below 450000 They like to keep an approximate level of 600000 but if it gets over 750000 those funds are reverted to the state general fund, okay? Anything over 750000 Interest earned from the fund, the recovery fund, actually goes back into the recovery fund. But if they charge a surcharge and they collect so much money and they say, wait a minute, we've got $800,000 in the recovery fund. Well, that $50,000, they're going to put it in, this, in the state general fund. But interest earned on that $750,000, it'll go right back into the recovery fund. Now, if the fund ever gets up to eight over seven fifty dollars because of the interest earned, then anything over that would go over to the general fund. Um, no expenses 
to administer the Indiana Code can be paid from the state general fund. Okay? It's all going to come out of the investigative fund or the general fund. Surcharges apply to everyone, but, and this could be a test question, but appraisers, the appraisal licensures or certification, if you have an appraisal certification. So, uh, surcharges apply to everyone, all real estate brokers, but it does not apply to the appraisal licensure or certification. And surcharges are for two-year period, July 1 through June 30th of the next odd year, okay? I don't think they will ask you that question, but it's not a bad idea to put that in your memory bank. Uh, they apply to everyone except the appraisal or certification folks, and it's two-year period from July 1st to June 30th of the next odd number year. Um, if someone who's unfairly treated, call it an, an aggrieved person, someone who's unfairly treated, uh, within a judgment, uh, wins a judgment, pardon me, I should have said that. So anyone who's an aggrieved person, unfairly treated, wins a judgment in a court of law to recover damages. And they could be things like embezzlement of money or, or property, unlawfully obtaining money or property under false pretenses, uh, use of device, trickery, forgery. They can apply to get reimbursed for the cash value only, okay? Now, and they file this application with the commission and it needs to be after all appeals and proceedings um, supplemental to the judgment have been exhausted, okay? So, uh, and they can include the court cost for refunding out of the recovery fund, but no attorney fees, okay? So, someone is, is taken advantage of by a real estate licensee, licensed under the code, loses money, they've tried to collect, they've filed appeals, they've gone through the legal process of trying to get their money back and nothing's happening and the appeals are over with, they've exhausted every route they can go. What are their options? Well, they can file a complaint or would be more than a complaint, it would be file a claim to the Indiana Real Estate Commission for reimbursement from the recovery fund. Now, here's what's important. Um, they can only get the cash value, so they can't say, well, you know, we lost this much money, but we should have, the value of this thing's a lot more than what we lost. No, you're only going to be able to get the money you lost back. And secondly, you could ask for your court costs to be included with that. However, you're going to be at your own attorney fees. Attorney fees would not be added to that, so keep that in mind. Um, payments from the fund, $20,000 per judgment, per licensee, and a 50000 lifetime limit. And that's respect to any one licensee. So they could ask that question 
and just kind of remember it's a $20,000 per judgment per licensee or a $50,000 lifetime. Now, must occur when the licensee was licensed. In other words, you know, they may give you an, a question that says John Smith had his license and then it expired or something in the question says wait a minute John never renewed his license and it was seven months later when John was no longer a licensed real estate agent that he performed this act and and embezzled this money could those people file a claim and the answer is no because it must occur when the licensee was licensed so you've got to read the questions very carefully okay number two it also has to be something that a license was required. So you couldn't just file a claim with the real estate commission and say, hey, John Smith defrauded me. I bought a car from him and he defrauded me. I want the real estate commission to pay me money back because John's a real estate licensee. Well, yes, John is a real estate licensee, but you bought a car from him. It wasn't a real estate transaction. Does that make sense? Again, they're going to throw some verbiage into a question. And you're going to have to pull this out and say, wait a minute, you know, a real estate license wasn't even required for this act. So that application through the recovery fund can never go anywhere. Or this person wasn't even licensed at the time the act was committed. You see how that works? So they like those kinds of questions. Now, if there's more than one aggrieved persons on the same licensee, uh, they distribute it by ratio with their whatever their respective claims bear. So, you know, again, read the question. If one person is embezzled a higher amount, they're going to get a higher ratio out of that. $20,000 per judgment, right? $50,000 lifetime. And claims are paid on the 30th of June and the 31st of December. All right, so keep that in mind. The commission is appointed as a registered agent if the licensee cannot be served. So what's that mean? You are a real estate licensee and no one can find you. You know, when there's a lawsuit or someone serves you for something you've done wrong and you can't find them, sometimes I've had uh, tenants who've rented from me and they quit paying their rent, so I had to have the sheriff serve an eviction and they'd never come to the door or you couldn't find them. It's like, how do you serve the eviction? That's why rental property can be a pain sometimes. Well, in this example, when you get your license, you're basically stating to the real estate commission that, hey, if you can't find me to serve me notice, you as the commission can act on my behalf as my registered agent. Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter if you're trying to hide out. If they try to serve you, you've already appointed the real estate commission to be your registered agent. They're just going to uh, accept the filing on your behalf because you've already appointed them <laughs> as your registered agent. Okay. Now, 
Still on the recovery fund, remember there's five questions from this area. Applications must be filed within one year of the termination of all proceedings after the judgment is issued, and that includes appeals. So you got to get that application in within one year after your all your appeals have been exhausted. All avenues of collecting from the licensee have been exhausted. You know that's the other thing. If you can, if you can collect that money from the licensee, they've won the lottery or they've got cash in the bank or it's a big company. You've got to collect from them first. If you've exhausted all of those avenues, then you can file this application with the recovery fund. But it has to be within one year. And remember, all appeals and everything has to be exhausted and finished. That's when the that's when the clock starts ticking for you to get that in within one year. Um, there can be no collusion of the parties. In other words, um, you know, you couldn't like get together and say, hey. Um, you know, let's do this, and you try to collect the money, so no collusion. Um, trying to think of other ways they may ask the word collusion. Uh, a synonym of collusion, that's what I was looking for. Let's just ask Google that, okay? <laughs> let's ask Google what. What are some synonyms of collusion? Here are some synonyms for collusion, we go, right here. conspiracy, connivance, complicity, intrigue, plotting. Collaboration, scheming. See, that's the thing about this real estate exam. They use a word in the license law, and we throw it into your material, but then they use all these other different words on the, on the test. So I want to just make sure anytime you see a word that looks foreign to you and you're not certain, I'd go to Google, look up some synonyms for that word, because chances are they're going to go and throw a word like uh, uh, conspiracy or, uh, you know, plotting. So if you're, you know, plotting, but if the parties are plotting to do this, that's not going to work, okay? No collusion. Um, this is an interesting point and very well could be an exam question. The licensee is suspended and they're going to have to pay back the interest at 12% and annual interest. They can't get their license back or even reapply to try to get it back until after the funds are paid back with interest. So let's think about that. If you have a court case filed against you in the local court, <laughs> excuse me, and um, someone sues you in court and they win. Court says, uh, Mayfield, you lose, you need to pay this person $25,000. I appeal it, we go through all this stuff, finally, we run out of appeals, exhaust all everything, and I've still lost twenty-five thousand. I mean, that's what I owe you, twenty-five thousand. You go and apply for monies under the recovery fund. Now you got to do that within one year after you've exhausted all your appeals, and you can't collect anything from me, right? 
so you cannot collect anything from me. I don't have any money. Maybe I file bankruptcy, whatever. And so now you file with the Real Estate Commission, the Recovery Fund, to try to get back your $25,000. you are only going to get probably $20,000 per judgment. Remember, that was one of the things. But hey, if you can get $20,000 back, that's better than losing $25,000. And remember, they're only going to pay you the actual cost. So uh, you couldn't say, hey, I was awarded $25,000 because Mayfield cheated me out of $25,000. But, you know, in my eyes, it's 50000 Well, no, you're only going to get the cash value. you got to file it within one year, and you can't collect from me, so now you file this application with the recovery fund. You do that within one year, all everything's been exhausted. Now, at that point, if the commission pays out the claim to you of $20,000, because that's a max per just judgment, right? My license is suspended, and I'm going to have to pay that back to the recovery fund at 12% per interest, okay? Um, The commission is now subrogated into your shoes. That's interesting because we talk about subrogation in the course, chapter 15, or what financing. (laughs) I'm rearranging some of the modules. Subrogation, and it's also in the title insurance section, is the substitution of a third party to go after claims. And so notice in the license law says the commission is now subrogated the rights of the recovery fund which means they can turn around and sue me or go after me to collect that money they've paid out to you. A couple of other things I just want to mention here. Um, Funds paid out of that are, you know, subject to the budget of the state of Indiana. Commission activities, educational courses, And the Attorney General's office actually provides the staff to help the commission with the recovery fund Um, and uh, lots of other things. So any kind of payment for staff help uh, expenses would be paid out of the recovery fund of the Attorney General's office. So we have five items there. From that section, and this section, um, we're going to get into licensing. And there are nine items under the licensing tab. Okay? Look at my time here. We're at 31 minutes. Um, So I'll try to pick the pace up a little bit. I know there's a lot of stuff here. But uh, remember, anyone who's, who's buying, selling, exchanging, dealing in options, negotiates, leases, rents, manages, lists, or appraises real estate, needs a real estate license. If you perform any of these acts for compensation, you need a real estate license, okay? So 
um, and I took that right from right from the license law. Uh, if you are doing any of those things, selling, buying, trading, exchanging, dealing in options, negotiating, leasing, renting, managing, listing, or appraising real estate, and you even offer to perform these for compensation, you need a license. Now, who's exempt? Well, attorneys practicing law per, under their performance by governmental officials, um, you know, receiver, executors, trustors, administrators, uh, they don't need a license. Rentals for less than 30 days. Let's see, I need to fix a, a zero there. Um, so any rentals less for 30 days don't need a license. Residential rentals for an, indi for an individual employed by an individual, a licensed broker. So um, if you're managing rentals and you're employed by a licensed broker, you wouldn't need a license. They would need one, the broker, and they're going to have to oversee what you're doing. Uh, owners of properties, unless they are licensed as real estate professionals, Auctioneers don't need a license. Cemetery lots, if you're selling those, you don't need a license. And keep in mind, some out-of-state commercial brokers will be granted the opportunity to, um, uh, to, to, to come into Indiana and sell real estate. They don't need a license. There are some rules that apply to them. Now, we have broker's license and we have company, partnership, and limited liability companies. Indiana is now an all-broker state. That's why sometimes you'll see throughout my course prior to this date, I think it was back in 2014 or 13, and so Indiana went to an all-broker state. So everyone has a broker's license, but if you want to manage an office, you need a managing broker's license. And and the broker, each company has to get a license. And so it gets a little complicated, but uh, just kind of think through the scenarios there. So um, there's broker's license, and the company must be licensed. So if you're operating as a corporation, a partnership, or a limited liability company, you would need a license as well. Now, to manage an office, again, you need a managing broker's license. And there are some non-residents who, if you meet certain requirements, uh, you can also be licensed. So uh, we talked about that. So those are some different types of licenses there. Okay, we're going to jump over to uh, number uh, our second page here. Whoops. Bring my notes back over here. Sorry about that. Um, so very quickly, you know, I want to, you know, go through these. They love these kind of questions, and you need to know that. Um, you have to be 18 years of age or older to apply for a license. Now, could you go to school and take the test prior to turning 18? Sure you can. It has, you have to be 18 to actually apply you have to wait until you're 18 before you can apply for the license. No convictions of anything that would be grounds for disciplinary action. Any crime that has a direct bearing on your ability to practice real estate or danger the public. 
need a high school degree or a GED. Again, these are all very important. They, they could throw a question in there. You need to complete the approved broker school of study, which you're doing. Then you have to go take and pass the written examination that's administered by the state. Once you do that, you can apply for your license. You have to do that on the proper forms and uh, put the com broker company you're going to go be uh, going to work for and then um, and the address of the brokerage company and have the managing broker sign that application and you need to do all of this within one year of passing the examination if you don't do that within one year you could go back you have to go back and do everything over again the school everything lots of things there they could pull a question out high school diploma or a GED uh, they could give you a question where somebody wasn't going to turn 18 what's the scenario it's okay for them to go to school take the test pass it they just can't apply for the license until they do it until they turn 18 now if that you know they could give you a question and the date could go out longer than a year from the time they pass the exam they'd have to start everything over again. So just read the questions carefully. I think you'll be fine there. Um, this, they, they could ask some questions from here. When we talk about business entities and getting a license, only the partners of the partnership or the employees of the corporation or the members of a limited liability company must be brokers, okay? The managing broker, whoever you designate to be the managing broker, needs to have a minimum of two years experience as a broker, and then you need to complete the 24-hour managing broker course. <coughs> Excuse me. So, when I was getting my school approved in Indiana, it was quite challenging. <laughs> um, I was able to prove that I had two years brokerage experience. I mean, you know, I have had a broker's license since 1981. So I, uh, I, I had to do all of those things they required, but I also had to take what is called a 24-hour managing broker course. So that's part of the deal. Managing brokers must be residents of Indiana. Could be a test question. Unless, another test question, uh, all of their employees are non-residents. So I guess if we all lived over in Kentucky, we were residents of Kentucky and we all lived in Kentucky, um, you know, I guess, and we, but we had an office in Indiana I guess the Kentucky man managing broker would be okay because everybody who worked for the person in Kentucky lives in Kentucky. Does that make sense? So it says managing broker must be a resident of Indiana unless all licensees associated are non-residents. So I guess we all live in Kentucky and I'm going to be the managing broker and it's okay because all of us, you and me and all everybody, we're working in Indiana, but we all live in Kentucky. Uh, we just drive across the state line. Our office is across the state line. We'd be okay. I can't ever hire anybody that lives in Indiana. Just can only hire people from Kentucky. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> so, okay. 
in any changes, name address change should be given to the commission immediately. Very important. Um, you can also be granted what's called a referral status. Commission grants a license of waiver. Uh, you can do no acts as a broker unless fulfilling the educational requirements. In other words, if you go into referral status, you can't come back and be a broker and do the acts of a broker unless you meet all of those things they require you to do, which is going to be some educational requirements and renewing your license. And you need to be assigned to a managing broker. You can't just work on your own as a broker. And you can only work for one broker at a time. So those are, I think, pretty self-explanatory, but you need to put those in your memory bank. bank. Uh, if you're inactive licensed or unassigned, you cannot practice real estate. You don't have to take continuing education, but you have to renew your license every renewal period. And the, and the Indiana Real Estate Commission actually holds your license. So um, you're going to find out that you can be an active broker. You can be an active assigned broker. You know, that's what we call that. You could be a managing broker, but there's some stipulations there. Remember, at least minimum of two years as a broker, and you have to take that 24-hour managing broker course. But you could also have your license on what's called an inactive status. You can't perform any real estate duties. You can't show property. You can't, you know, hold an open house if your license is inactive or unassigned. And who's holding those licenses? The Real Estate Commission. Um, now, if I put my license inactive or, or unassigned, I don't have to take continuing education, but I do have to renew my license every two years, or three years in Indiana. It's two years in Missouri. I don't want to confuse you. Every three years, okay? So we'll talk about that some more. Um, so, license maintenance. By the way, I've got a note here in, in the cheat sheet. There's no distinction between residential or commercial licenses. Only individual license and business or corporate license. Business entities like the limited liability company, the partnership, or the corporation. Okay? New licensees must complete 30 hours of post-licensing. That's probably going to be a test question. So you, as a new licensee, when you finish the course, you're going to have to come back and take a 30-hour post-licensing education. And you have to do that within your first two years, and that replaces your continuing education. Okay? Now, old-timers <laughs> have to do continuing education. You're going to be an old-timer soon, and you'll have to do CE. We call it CE, or continuing education. But for you as a new licensee, you've got to complete 30 hours of post-licensing, how to fill out contracts, and just general things in that nature. And you need to do that within the first two years of getting your license, okay? All other licensees have to take 12 hours of continuing education every 12 months. Now, the managing broker, and again, these are all really possible exam questions. The managing broker, so I'm a managing broker now that I have my school approved. 
I have to take 12 hours of continuing education every 12 months. Uh, we all have to take 12 hours of continuing education every 12 months, 36 hours over the three-year period. But I have to take four hours out of my 12 each year has to be uh, regarding business and management education, okay? So let me go back through that to make sure you understand that. A new licensee, new licensee, you have to take 30 hours of post-licensing education within two years of getting your license, okay? Instead of continuing education, you're going to take 30 hours of post-license. Old-timers, those who have gone past that requirement, you have to take 12 hours of continuing education every 12 months. Managing brokers of your 12 for that is going to be specifically geared at business and management skills and legal knowledge needed to manage a brokerage office. In other words, you know, you're going to find schools like myself who say, hey, we have these classes that are approved, and I would indicate this one's been approved for managing broker, and it might be a two-hour course or a four-hour course. Well, if you're a managing broker, you've got to make sure that four of your 12 are geared toward business management skills and legal knowledge needed as a managing broker. Now we renew our license every three years, but you're still taking CE 12 hours every 12 months. If you fail to renew your license, you're gonna to have to pay some late fees and you're gonna to have to make sure your education's fulfilled. But one of the things in the license long could be a test question. I've seen this in Missouri a lot. Someone has a license and fails to renew their license. Another three years comes by and it's time to renew your license again. And they do not renew their license on that next renewal period. So in other words, they've gone one renewal period and did not renew and another three years and did not renew. What happens? They have to start all over again. If they had renewed before that second renewal period, they could have maybe gotten away with just delinquent fees and um, education, but because they've gone now past the second renewal time period, they have to start all over again, okay? So just kind of remember that. You may not see that on the test, and you could. Um, if you're changing brokers, you need to notify the commission within five days. Uh, the managing broker needs to do that. Changing teams within your office, no need to notify the commission. That could be a question. So, But if you change brokers, you have to notify the commission. And actually, when I was reading today and going over some things, um, as, a, as a broker, you're going to be assigned to an to a specific office, if your company has different branch offices and you change offices, then it's your responsibility to notify the commission as well. Remember, no false advertising or material deception in the course of professional activities. Um, and it's not just limited to real estate. You just, you know, you, 
you couldn't really be false and deceptive in selling stuff on Facebook, I guess, or um, selling a car, and you know, any of that kind of stuff could be grounds that you could lose your license because if you're deceptive in another field, could be deceptive here as well. Okay, statutory and regulations. That that last part, licensing. What did I say? I think there's nine items that could come from that, five from that first section. In statutory and regulations, you could see 12 items from this section. And again, you have your cheat sheet. Go through that. Hopefully, uh, the podcast is going to work good for us as well, too. I'm hoping so. Very quickly, all advertising must be in the name of the broker you're, you're, you're associated with, and the company name must be in that. They love those questions. There can be no what we call blind ads. In other words, the public needs to know they're calling a real estate agent or a real estate company. So you couldn't try to create an ad that looks like it's from the general public or for sale by owner just to get leads. You know, anything like that's illegal. And by the way, I get a lot of people who ask me these questions. And, and you know, I had one today where they're saying the seller wanted me to do something and it's illegal <laughs> what should I, what's the answer and there's usually one of the choices is don't take the listing refuse to take the listing or you know run as fast as that I don't think that's a choice but uh, the answer is refuse to take the listing okay so you know you you can't do things like this if you read a question and you're not putting your broker name or broker company name in there. That's wrong, and you can't do that. Um, all advertising needs to be done in the supervision of your managing broker or your broker company. Uh, doing business as Mayfield Real Estate, Inc., not John Mayfield Broker. Um, internet ads, if you're doing tweets or you're doing Instagram posts, there needs to be a link in there that points the, the consumer to a landing page so you can display Mayfield Real Estate Inc., the company name and all the information there. Does that make sense? So even social media posts, if you don't have enough room to put everything, there has to be a link going to your website or your landing page that displays all of this information so the public would know, hey, this is from a real estate broker. Again, no blind ads. Uh, and you can't advertise a property if you don't have the owner's permission or signature. You know, you can't put a sign up. You can't put it in the multi-list. could see a question, you know, it's technically it's interesting. We have this conversation a lot. You sell a home, so we have a closing today. I'm representing the buyer, and um, you're representing the seller. And so in my area the listing agency normally puts up the sold sign. The, the selling agency has the right to do that. But, you know, a lot of us worry about, not that it's bad luck, but it's like, heaven forbid we put the, the sold sign up until after the money's in everybody's hands, right? You know, I don't want to jinx that deal in any way. And so a lot of times the listing agency puts the sold sign up on the property. Well legally that's against the law and you might say why is that against the law well when you have the closing 
the title company is going to take the deed and record it in the new owner's name, right? So, do you, as the listing agent, have permission from my buyers, who are now the legal registered owners, to advertise their property? And the answer is no. But yet you're advertising with a for sale sign and a sold sign on it, the buyer's home, and you have no written authorization. Probably should get a form signed at closing that just says it's okay for us to put a sold sign out. Now, I haven't seen test questions on that, but it could be. You have to have written permission to advertise the property. That's, that's the point I want to make there, okay? Um, commission will not hear compensation disputes. They love those questions. A couple of brokers getting a cat fight about, or a dog fight, I should say. I mean, you know, fight should be the right way. Um, they didn't mean that in any disrespect to just, I was just thinking of two cats fighting, okay, or two dogs fighting. Uh, but if brokers are fighting, that's what I want to say. Um, about who, who's entitled to what commission. They're, the commission will not get involved in those kinds of things, okay? They just won't, so keep that in mind. Um, remember, commissions are always negotiable, and they're negotiable between the broker and the agent, the broker and other brokers, and the broker and the client. You don't want to talk about commissions out in public because um, you know, you don't want to ever say that's what everyone charges. I saw a social media post where a lady made a post about commissions and what she was going to start charging. And I'm like, that's a violation of antitrust, the Sherman Antitrust Act. And you can actually go to prison for that. You can go to jail for that. So never want to talk about commissions. Never want to post anything about, hey, I need a higher commission rate. Commissions are always negotiable. And if someone starts talking about commissions and you're with a group of brokers, you need to get up and leave the room, okay? So just remember that. Uh, we don't know what anyone else charges. We only know what our office charges. And the real estate commission's not going to get involved in a dispute between two brokers over commissions. So just won't do that. Um, oh, the other thing I need to make sure you understand is you can only get a check from your managing broker or your company. So if you sell a house for another broker, that other company broker cannot pay you as a broker. They have to pay your broker, your managing broker, your company, and then your company will pay you. Okay, so keep that in mind. It's okay to offer co-op fees. We just need to put that in our listing contracts, make sure everybody agrees to it. Same way with referrals, if you see that on the test. And, um, and you can't sue another broker for a commission if they're in violation of the license law, which is kind of interesting there. Uh, listing agreements need to be in writing, must contain an expiration date, you need to deliver a copy within three business days, okay? Original and any all electronic copies kept by the listing broker 
and net listings must contain a maximum commission amount. So had a uh, copy being delivered within three business days. Um, need to make sure that um, yeah, you have that down. Now, Indiana brokerages must establish and maintain an escrow account, at least one, if they're going to handle monies for other folks, okay? Uh, you can have more than one account, but if you're going to handle in earnest money for others, you need to have at least one. Uh, needs to be in an interest, it needs to be in an insured account in the state of Indiana. It could be a bank or savings and loan, it needs to be in Indiana. Interest bearings are account, but you as a broker can't keep the interest. Um, identify, always identify when you write checks or deposit money where who's involved with that transaction. Uh, brokers must keep up to $100 of their own funds in the account. You can, you can do that to cover expenses. And then there can be no commingling of funds. You know, it's interesting. I had uh, a person tell me who recently took the Indiana exam. There's a question about could you have a sub-account with your business and personal funds as long as it was a, like you had it as a sub-account in the trust account? And the answer is no. Trust accounts and escrow accounts are by themselves separate entities. You can, uh, you cannot commingle funds. So you cannot have a sub account in any way with personal or business funds. You can have up to $100 of your own money in the account, but that's it. And just make sure you keep a ledger and keep good details. You know, things like the parties involved in the transaction, the date you deposited, what it's for, all of that kind of stuff needs to be spelled out. Um, and the other thing, you could accept other things as earnest money as long as everybody agrees to it. There's been an exam question about a dairy cow or a diamond ring or a boat as earnest money. And is that okay? Yes, as long as everyone agrees, okay? Keep that in mind. I've been practicing real estate for 42 years, never had anything like that for earnest money. I have had people put promissory notes as earnest money. We had some investors one time who came into the area and they were buying up a bunch of properties with, and they would use that as an earnest money was a promissory note. Is that legal? And the answer is, as long as everybody agrees to it, yes it is. So. You could even have zero dollars if everybody agreed to that. Um, if the offer is never accepted, if it's rejected, or the counter offer is rejected, or if somebody just says, wait a minute, I've gotten cold feet, and they call you up before the offer has been accepted and said, I want to rescind my offer. And you say, oh man, I think they may take it. Well, that's okay. We, we want to pull our offer if it hasn't been accepted. Remember, that's rescinding a contract. You have to give the earnest money back immediately in those examples, okay? So keep that in mind. Or if there's an agreement, an amendment, or an addendum, we call it a mutual release. If everybody signs that, you give the earnest money back to however they've all agreed to that. Um, and remember in Indiana, we have this thing called a seller, residential seller's disclosure. If the seller has something bad about the house, discovers after it's under contract, 
and I amend my seller's disclosure and I give it to you and I say, hey, by the way, I just found out the sewer line shot. We had a backup in our basement and I don't have the money to fix the sewer line and but you know, I want to let you know there's a problem with the sewer line. And you look at that and say, okay, that's not, that's not acceptable to me. I want my earnest money back. It would be returned to you immediately. Otherwise, there is this thing where the broker can um, wait, can, can send a certified letter if the closing date's passed. So let's say we were supposed to close yesterday. Today, the closing date's passed. You guys are in a disagreement. Buyer and seller are in a disagreement as who should get the earnest money. Buyer wants it back. Seller says, no, I want to keep it. Closing date's passed. The broker can now send a certified letter to all parties saying, look, I think the seller should keep the earnest money and that's where I'm going to give it. Or I'm going to disperse it 50-50. You can do that. You have to wait 60 days for disbursement. But if a mutual release is signed in advance by all parties agreeing where it goes and that voids that out, or if one of the parties files litigation in court, then you can't disperse that money. You're going to have to probably turn it over to the court. All right, going on over a couple of other earnest money. We just did that. Uh, appraisals, remember appraisers are licensed separately in Indiana. They require more education and experience. A broker can perform an appraisal for a fee. However, it must be done in accordance with the USPAP guidelines. Federally insured loans need a certified appraiser. And broker price opinions are not governed, they are not governed by the uh, Indiana Code, so keep that in mind. Psychologically impacted property or stigmatized properties, you'll probably see something on that. An owner or an agent's not required to disclose to a transferee, that's what they call that, and transferee's a buyer or an agent. You're not required to disclose that. You don't disclose if someone's had HIV or AIDS, if someone's died in the property, a murder, suicide, gang activity. The site was an incident of police shooting or the distribution of a controlled substance. Now that doesn't exclude methamphetamine or any hazardous chemical, but all of those other, you know, the, they were selling other drugs on the property. You wouldn't have to disclose it. Um, and the key here is you don't have, you can't misrepresent the fact. If someone asks you that question, you don't have to answer it, okay? But you can't misrepresent the fact to a direct question. You lie about it. You know there was a suicide, and you say, oh, no, there was never a suicide here. That's misrepresenting if you know that. So the best answer would be to say, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to answer that question, okay? So um, that would be one of the, you know, keep that in mind there. Okay, a couple of other things we need to go over there on 
Seller's disclosure, always disclose known defects. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, we have a form we have to use in Indiana. Has to be signed in all exchanges, installment and land contracts, leases, residential sales. It applies to one to four family dwellings. Now, who's not required to sign it? These are all exam questions. Court order transfers, estates, foreclosures, bankruptcies, eminent domain, divorces, property settlements. When the bank transfers one property, if we're co-owners, and I, you know, I would know about the property, family members from to other family members, tax sales, transfer of government properties, brand new homes never lived in, for sale by owners, unless the for sale by owner is a licensed real estate agent. Um, all of those people don't have to sign a seller's disclosure, residential seller's disclosure. Remember, one to four family dwellings, leasing, selling, exchanging, all of those take place. So the state has a form. We have that in your resources and your, re and your additional references. Download that, take a look at it. The disclosure covers things about the foundation, mechanical systems, the roof, the structure, the water and sewer and septic, and uh, other areas the commission determines that might be appropriate. You know, if you know about zoning issues. The residential disclosure forms are not a substitute for a, an inspection. It's not guaranteeing anything, and it doesn't serve as any kind of warranty, so I think we should know that. So all of those items there, that's part of the exam, and I'm trying to remember how many questions are on the exam there. I'd have to go back up and look, but we're going to move over to the states or statutes and rules. Let me just go back over there real quick. So we were just on that, and I think, trying to look and see here, 12 items from that chapter statutory and regulatory. Okay, now we're on statutes and rules governing licensees and there are 17 questions from this. Remember the burden is always on the licensee to clarify and document agency relationships. Uh, brokerages and managing brokers must have a written agency policy. Could be a test question got to have an, a written agency company policy. Uh, we need to always explain agency to the consumer and explain about co-op fees and also referral fees. Remember the payment to you doesn't establish any kind of an agency. We talk about that in, in the main course. Just because someone pays you a fee doesn't mean that's that you have an agency. So what are the different type of agencies in Indiana? And the nice thing about these, once you know the rules under one, they, they apply to the other one. They're just kind of flipped, okay? So the listing agent. And keep in mind seller or landlord, because these apply to leasing as well. If you are a real estate broker leasing property, you owe fiduciary duties to your client. Remember, care, obedience, accounting, loyalty, disclosure. Seller, landlord. 
need a written agency agreement, need a listing contract, cannot disclose motivation without the consent of the seller. I think those would be pretty easy to spot on the test. You know, did your owner give you consent to disclose motivation? You can't disclose confidential information, again, unless you have the uh, approval from your client. But normally, you're not going to disclose confidential information about your client. Must treat buyers and tenants honestly and not give false information. I gave you a good example. Um, you don't have to disclose psychologically or stigmatized properties, right? Someone's committed suicide or murder in the home. Um, you don't have to disclose that. So someone, a buyer asks you, hey, was there a suicide or a murder in this home? And you know the answer. You can't falsify that information to a direct question. So you've got to be honest, and you could, you could be okay by saying, I refuse to answer that question, or I choose not to answer that question. You're not lying, but you're not falsifying something. You've got to disclose known facts. If you know the roof leaks or you know the basement leaks or any of those, you have to disclose it. If you see a question and the seller is wanting you to not disclose something and you know something like that, which, it, which would have a material value deficiency to that property, you've got to disclose that. You have to be honest to the buyer or the tenant and tell them about those things. If you know the home has mold in it and you're leasing it to someone, you've got to be honest to that tenant. Uh, you know, but you don't have to tell the tenant that your seller's about to lose the home if they don't get this rented quickly. Or you don't have to disclose confidential information about your landlord and their spouse getting a divorce and things are tough financially and they're unemployed, right? Though that's confidential information. But material defects you'd have to disclose. Um, now the the law says you can go on and you can go on and list other competing properties. You're not violating your agency relationship, and we see that in Missouri and other states as well. And you can continue to show competing properties, okay, without violating your agency. So you know, think about getting you get a house listed for a client, and then the next door neighbor wants you to list their house, and your seller's like, wait a minute, you violated your fiduciary duty. You're working for me. You can't work for my neighbor next door. No, there's nothing in the law that prohibits you from listing competing properties or showing competing properties, okay? Now, selling agent, it's just all flipped. Same exact stuff, except now your loyalty's with the buyer or the tenant. Before, your loyalty was with the seller and the landlord. Now, if I accidentally pronounce something incorrectly and you caught it, well, good. I'm glad you caught it. You know, you get in these videos and sometimes I'm thinking, did I say tenant, tenant a minute ago when I was under the landlord seller? And so anyway, now we're talking about the selling agent. You're a buyer's agent, right? Uh, hopefully you get a written buyer's agency agreement. But everything just flips. You owe your fiduciary duties to the buyer. You need a written buyer's agency agreement. Um, you cannot disclose motivation about your buyer or tenant unless they give you permission. Got to be in before school. You want to just put that on the, the, 
the buyer's agency agreement. The buyer is okay with me saying they have to find something before school starts. Now, you probably wouldn't want to do that. You'd hurt their negotiating duties. Um, you must treat sellers and landlords honestly, right? Got to be honest in that respect. But you can't disclose motivational information. Uh, and, and you do need to disclose any material facts. Have they recently filed bankruptcy? Are they having trouble? Uh, you know, did they just quit their job? All of those things are material because if I as a seller accept that offer, that's really taking my property off the market and you've just given, you know, you're, you're hiding a material defect that could affect whether they could get a loan or not. Does that make sense? Uh, you can work with other buyers and tenants and you can, um, you know, show other competing properties. So don't, don't think those. Now, let's talk about limited agent responsibilities. In Indiana, when you are a dual agent, you're called a limited agent. In Missouri, we call it a disclosed dual agent. A lot of states call it disclosed dual agency. Some states don't even allow that, like Florida. But in Indiana, we call it a limited agent. It's where you're working for both sides. The key here is you owe fiduciary duties. The key's really in the confidential information. If, if the buyer gives you confidential information like, hey, we'd like to, we really want the home, we'll pay full price, but we'd like to offer this much, you can't tell the seller. This vice versa. Seller says, Let's counter at this, but don't lose it, John. We really want to want to make sure we can get this deal tied down. That's confidential information. I can't tell that to the other party. So um, I can provide MLS comps. I just can't interpret the comps from the MLS. I can't advocate for either side or counsel either side under the license law in Indiana. So. Uh, can't disclose a pricing strategy to either side, can't disclose motivation, got to keep that stuff confidential. And I can't advocate or counsel, I can just say here are some comps from the MLS. Why? Because I'm a limited agent now. Now an in-house agency is when two agents from the same office are employed by two different clients. So you and I work in the same company. I'm representing the seller as a seller's agent. You're representing the buyer as a buyer's agent. We now have what is called a limit or an in-house agency. Two agents from the same agency represent different clients, okay? Now, in-house agency is not a limited agency. Therefore, no written consent is needed. I should have mentioned that with limited agency, you do need a written permission from all parties, and I think it says prior to performing any of the acts, so um, I can't remember that exactly. I'll have to look that up, but just understand you need written consent from everyone to act in that capacity. With an in-house agency, there it's not an it's not a limited agency. Remember that that could be a test question. So there's no written consent required. However, here's a key and a quest possible question: If the managing broker is one of the agents, remember 
in-house agency, it's in-house. Sometimes managing brokers still list and sell real estate. So if a managing broker is one of the agents, a limited agency is created and would require written consent from the parties. Does that make sense? Otherwise, a managing broker is basically a limit, is limited as a person, but the transaction is not, if that makes sense. Disclosure and information shared by the managing broker is touchy. So gets into some things. And we've got information in the course material where I've pretty much brought that in from the license law that you could go back and take a look at. I think that's in um, module 18, 17, but I have those listed now in your modules. Non-representation, if this happens, the agent should request a written letter of non-representation. And don't forget, because this could be a test question, sub-agency is not allowed in Indiana. No sub-agency. Net listing, you've got to put the maximum commission amount. Now, some of these last things, and I know we're at an hour and 16 minutes, these are fairly easy, incompetent practices, um, failing, I should fix here, I have feeling, I was failing to account for monies and documents, um, entrusted to you by others, so I'm going to fix that there, so Offering inducements or rebates uh, to obtain a listing or initiating a sale without full written disclosure to all parties in the transaction. Now the issue is not the inducement, but rather the fact that the disclosure is made to all parties. So it just make sure everybody knows. Uh, failing to disclose direct profits made in conjunction with a real estate transaction. Um, Failing to disclose commissions earned by a home warranty sale. That's an example of that. Acting as a dual agent without the consent of all. So that's, remember, a limited agent is a dual, kind of like a dual agent. So if you act in that capacity and you don't get everyone's approval, that would be an incompetent practice. Um, offering real estate for sale on terms other than those. See, some of these I think you'll pick out easily on the exam. Um, inducing someone to breach a contract, um, expecting compensation or this type of kickback for an appraisal report, a predetermined value, appraising real property as a licensee and failing to disclose that you're a licensee or a party in the transaction, trying to solicit a client when you know they're already under a relationship, attempting to work for more than one managing broker, um, putting a commission or otherwise compensating someone who's not licensed, committing any active fraud, deception, if you're convicted of a crime. And remember, you have 30 days to report to the commission any criminal convictions. So that could be a question. Uh, being found guilty of an unlawful discriminatory practice in fair housing, can't do that. Um, Failing to account for monies or documents that are entrusted to you. Offering inducements or rebates. We talked about that. 
Uh, let's see. Always disclose your status as a real estate licensee. Uh, always disclose your agency status if you're a limited agent. Always get approval for referral fees. Remember, you have to be managed by a managing broker. We talked about that. If it's a sole proprietor, the sole proprietor shall be the managing broker. Partners, corporations, limited liability companies, they're all going to designate someone to be a managing broker. Uh, a managing broker may also be a branch manager. Some of these I've already talked about that. Uh, upon termination, make sure you notify the commission. You can't practice real estate if you're not under a managing broker. Just take a look at a few more of these. We're almost done here. Some of these I think you'll be okay with. Um, you know, when you leave a broker, your listings are between the broker and um, the client, not you. So you have to leave those there. Um, see here contract needs to be in writing could be in electronic format uh, four more copies this is an important part I saw that I want you to know um, one copy given to prospective purchaser at the time of signing one copy for your managing broker one copy for the sellers and one copy to be returned to purchase after acceptance or rejection all offers, counteroffers, or rejections must be communicated immediately. Uh, see if I'm missing anything here. And then they talk about unlicensed assistance. Um, perform any activities that would require a license. Uh, if you're going to prepare pr promotional material or advertisements, it needs to be done uh, and approved by your supervising broker so an unlicensed assistant needs to do that in the supervision of their broker uh, unlicensed assistants cannot show property they cannot answer questions about listings other than the list price address property features or geographic directions you can't explain a contract a listing um, documents with anyone outside your company you couldn't conduct an open house cannot do telemarketing to try to canvas for listings and you can't negotiate a fee or anything like that on behalf of your broker if you're unlicensed okay so those are things you can't do um, copies need to be retained for at least five years it's a responsibility of the managing broker to deliver to their clients at the time such transaction is done, normally before closing, uh, or be completed a detailed closing statement. And someone from both companies needs to be at the closing, could be a licensee or the managing broker, unless your client's not going to be there. So if they're not going to attend the closing, you wouldn't have to be there. Um, and attending closings is not applicable for commercial real estate institutional type clients or if the client's not going to be at the closing. That pretty much wraps up all of those notes. Now, go through your other material in your course because the modules are kind of short for 
the state material but this is a cheat sheet that should cover most all of the stuff although I do see some typos and I'm going to fix that right now when we finish here. I am going to pull this audio off and it's going to also be in an audio format. I'll give you a link for that and then you can come back and watch this as well and I think I believe because I went through the outline with PSI and then I went through the license law pulling this information out uh, I think you're going to do just fine on the state exam. Now I do want to forewarn you they're not going to just throw this stuff out to you easily like I'm giving it to you. They're going to throw it in the form of a question and flip and turn and make it weird. And you're going to then have to read through the question and pick out and say, wait a minute. Um, I remember John saying that I had to pass my exam and apply for my license within one year from the date I passed my exam. And in looking at this question, it appears to me he passed his exam on August the 5th, 2019, and he's applying for his license on September 5th, 2020. That's not going to fly. He needs to go back to school and complete the course again and retake the test. So they'll give you, they'll give you this in question format, you just need to be sure and, and understand the principles that we're talking about here and pull it out and apply it to the question and you'll do just fine. All right, that wraps it up for our cheat sheet. That sounds like we're cheating, but we're not. But our cheat sheet for Indiana. I hope this was helpful. And uh, remember, if you have any questions or need help, you shoot me an email. I'm here to help you pass that exam on the first attempt. And by the way, I hope you've enjoyed the course because you're really at the end of the course now where I'm going to put this. And I, I do hope you've enjoyed the course. And more importantly, you'll refer others to Global Real Estate School.